Hey, Mitch. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Everyday Meeple. What's that? Oh, that's just a little show where everyday people talk everything Meeple. Meaning everything board games. I like board games. And we're the everyday people. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm in. Okay, great. Well, let's get right right into it. (laughs) Yeah. I have have no um, news, really. Yeah. I was trying to think, you know, what's happened this week? That's exciting that I'd be like, I know there's a bunch of Kickstarters that are pretty cool. There's a lot. But but there's always there's always a lot. A lot of Kickstarters that are pretty cool. Yeah. And and I don't and that like I feel weird always sort of pushing a, a Kickstarter whenever I rarely back them anymore. Oh, me neither. I've basically sworn never to again, I think. Yeah. Unless it's Canadian and, and makes sense for me. Well, but. I just backed the cardboard alchemy Kickstarter where they're they're basically trying to get a publishing company up and running, and oh, right. they had really nice art for some drink coasters, and it was it was a dollar. So, hmm. well, you know what? Some some of those kickstarters are the ones that make the most sense, like uh, content creators who are just looking for a pittance, and you might get like a small promo that doesn't cost anything to send to you or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or a digital reward if you can contribute to someone's livelihood of of just contributing to this community. I think. That makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I'm being, I'm being lured, like, you know, tempted by Satan almost is what it feels like. I'm not saying that cool mini or not are Satan. That's don't misquote me world, but uh, they, they're running this massive darkness to Kickstarter right now, yeah. which is just like the title of the game says massive. It's like hundreds of miniatures. They're very beautiful looking. And every day in my feed, I get like, Hey, we just unlocked. And it's a dungeon crawl. Like uh, I think angels versus demons kind of style, really cool art, really cool sculpts. I love dungeon crawls. I love that kind of thematic Ameritrashy board game. Uh, and this yesterday, I'm, I'm strolling through, and it's been mostly like demons and Sharon, the fairy, you know, the Greek fairy guy who drives the boat in the underworld. Um, it's been uh, imps and you know your typical dungeon monsters. And then yesterday, I'm strolling through, and it was like Rainbow Bridge or something like that. And it's like uh, a monster pack that you get that's basically like unicorns and Care Bears. And I don't oh, understand nice. at all, but it's really interesting. It's kind of neat that they have a campaign well, scenario built around this fan, uh, quirky rainbow fantasy. You know, when I when I was young, I saw a Care Bear movie where all of the Care Bears turned evil. So there you go. I believe it. Yeah. So there's some weird, I, I, I didn't read Maybe right it, TV shows. some weird dimension where these cute and cuddly animals are out to get you, which is, that's really appealing, which speaks to me that people need to be stepping outside of the fantasy uh, box and doing something different. But Are you familiar with Board Game Design Lab? They run a, I am. a podcast and a website. Yeah. Dustin a uh, Schwartz, maybe is that his name? Gabe. Oh, oh Gabe's, the, okay, Dustin's another guy. You're right, Gabe. Yeah. Gabe. Um, Gabe is running a Kickstarter. Board Game Design Lab does does a lot of resources for just game design. And he's running a Kickstarter that is a game design kit. So you you get basically oh, yeah. a, a box and a ton of parts, bits and blank stuff. And then you get uh, some design resources like a design guide kit that he's put together and the how to fail faster playtesting right. guide and, and a bunch of stuff and then a bunch of digital resources that come with it too. And that, that Kickstarter is running right now. It's like 35 bucks US to get this mm. box of stuff, which is, cool. which is, which is a neat one for as far as things that, that are kickstarting and stuff in different games. This is a, is a great one. This, I see this as, as a wonderful present to give people, yeah, young people and stuff like, you know, 
you know, an up and coming kid who's excited about board games, give them a box of try and make your own. Right. Yeah, that's a neat idea. That's cool. Well, I uh, haven't been, it seems he like... He also you know, has on the design game design lab, there's a lot of great resources for people if you are interested in designing your own games or getting your feet into that. And they have great resources for writing rules. They do. And that's why I said Dustin Schwartz, because Dustin Schwartz is a, a guest the design lab had on about, he's a professional rule writer, I think. Um, I have a little bit of news. It's because I haven't been playing a ton of board games outside of, I think we're similar. We play a lot of family games. So I've been playing, you know, Colorado with, with Sam and Sam bought that uh, Pokemon arena um, which comes in like a board game box, but it is just a trading card game. It's, it's three decks from the trading card game. Uh, but thankfully, he's like taken to it and he's really good at it. And we actually play the Pokemon card game now. They're not just lying around, around my house. <laughs> like hundreds and hundreds of cards and making a mess. Which And it's a fun, it's a fun game. So we've been playing a lot of family games like that. But the one game that I, I have been playing over the past month or so uh, with a group is King's Dilemma, which... Nominated for Kenner Spiel this year, lost to the crew, but the nomination itself speaks to the game that it's been well received and most people seem to really like it. Published by, they work horrible games. I think they've just changed to Horrible Guild. Right. Yeah. Um, I love their logo. Yeah, it's a great. It's like just the one tentacle. But we've wrapped it up last night. The rule book said, I think, 15 to 24 games, and we did the bare minimum. Not that we tried to or anything, but we just played 15 games. And they could be really quick. Some games could only be half an hour. Some games could be over an hour, depending on how it played out. And I can't really get into details about the game because it's a narrative story experience legacy. I wouldn't want to spoil anything for anybody listening. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, light on mechanics. That sounded very convincing. It was, it was really <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I well, enjoyed it very much. We got we got it to the table and we played it and it was a lot of fun. That's me reporting from the field uh, <laughs> during a storm. Well, you know, you and I were worried about it a little bit cuz it it sells itself as kind of like an open negotiation game and I suffer at games like Avalon where I have to maybe like fib and trick opponents and you know, the game basically is a bunch of council members to the king sitting around a table. You pick a house that you um, that you represent and basically you make all the decisions for the king. The game is as simple as you flip a card, you read a little bit of text that presents to you a dilemma, hence King's Dilemma. And then you talk about it as a group and then you basically play poker. You have a choice to either vote yes, no, or pass. And you go around the table in a particular order based on a few things, but you make a case for it. And then you vote and then goes to the next person and you can kind of bribe each other with money. Um, So there is some kind of, you know, a little bit of trying to ally with people, trying to get what you want to make happen. And I was a little worried about that because I didn't want to have to, you know, really try to maybe go after the leader or try to manipulate my way through this game. But really what removed that, that kind of Avalon tension was in a very similar way, you and I have played Fog of Love, um, which is a narrative experience where basically you're moving a lot of levers on a board without getting into a ton of detail. The board is set up in such a way where you want certain tokens to end up in certain parts of the of the board for your own personal agenda. They're like set up as sort of meters and you have a, 
an area you want. Yeah. They're set up to, to show you how the kingdom's doing. So it might be like wealth and influence and welfare, things like that. And you have a, a secret agenda every game where you kind of want the board state to look a certain way. So no matter what you truly feel morally or ethically about a particular dilemma, at the end of the day, you kind of just want the board to look your way to get the most points. So the narrative is almost fluff. You can just get into it in the same way you can get into a kind of a role-playing game where you're you're just kind of playing your character and you'll just kind of what you're what you're fibbing you're not tricking your opponent you're just role playing that your house wants something to go a certain way so that the board looks a certain way so it kind of removed that uh, backstabbery there's not really anything in it so anyways it was it was a lot of fun it was one of my favorite board game experiences i will i will say it's in a similar way that fog of love kind of blew my mind when i played it because i didn't know board games could do that with narratives and and role playing that's the closest comparison i can make is a kind of mash of fog of love and then something like cosmic encounter where you're kind of bluffing and embedding in a poker style you know what i mean uh, but anyways we finished last night our good friend Andrew, who won just about every game, felt like we ended up tying in the end. And we went scrambling around in the rule book to see what the tiebreaker was and could not find one anywhere. And I even mm-hmm. hit the forums, uh, the good old faithful BGG forums. Uh, many people have had the same situation where every player had tied at the oh, end. Wow. Uh, and they had just said, well, we house ruled that you know the person who won the most individual games kind of played the better game. And we kind of went with that. It felt like Andrew was playing the game so well and and won most of them that we said, yeah. And the odds were stacked against him in the end and we kind of all turned on him kind of a little bit. <laughs> uh, so he he kind of, he earned it. I didn't I didn't know there was a tie. I was just told that Andrew won. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I tied him. I tied him. And I, and I, I, thought I, I thought I had won for a second and then he realized he had one more point written down somewhere. And so, yeah, honestly, probably my favorite, although... I, I'll have to see once we, we have to finish Clank Legacy at some point down the road. And this is the first Legacy game I've ever finished. And before I played this game, I would have said Clank Legacy would be my game of the year probably because we were having such a fun time with it. And it'll be really interesting to see if we can play through the end of that. Those will be some really awesome games that I've got to play this year. And probably my only complaint with King's Dilemma would be those couple of admittances from its rule book. One being no tiebreaker at the end, which honestly the game is, is, is so fun. And we had a really fun experience playing it that the winner, I don't think it really mattered. We were just kind of like, cool. This is how it all played out. This is how the story shook out. I say that, but of course everyone is happy to win. Uh, so it would have been nice to have definitive, I think. And the only, and another, so my other complaint then is that uh, we played the first three games as four players and all the reviewers online were saying, you know, you should try to play with five because the more, it's a bit more dynamic. There's always like a potential tie-breaking vote rather than four players is often two versus two. And so uh, our other friend Chris joined us at game four and we went scrambling through the rule book looking for a catch-up mechanism to say, hey, if someone new joins, maybe they get so many points or extra money or whatever the case may be. And there was no catch-up mechanism uh, built in for a player dropping in late. And I also hit the board game geek forums and lots of people had house ruled things uh, while others had said the game has mechanisms built into its system to allow for a late player to to get ahead. And I think it was, t- it was totally possible that a late player could have pulled ahead and won, but still at the end, when you don't win, it's really easy to think, yeah. well, three more games would have really helped. So those were kind of two things that hopefully I would imagine with the success of the game that, that these the horrible guilds, I, I hope they'll really take the system and give it another setting and maybe tweak a few things. Just maybe put the catch up mechanism and a tiebreaker in there. Yeah. 
We'll see. There is a, at the same time, right now there's launching a new version of Avalon. I saw that, yeah. Called called Quest. Yeah. That has beautiful new art and apparently has has removed a lot of those bits that made you sweat. Really? Supposedly a lot of the voting has been replaced with some sort of uh, different tokens and stuff where you still elect people to go on quests, but I don't think there's as much voting involved huh. with whether people agree with it. Interesting. I haven't I haven't sifted through it all, but it seems like that's one of the big changes. So I don't know if they're they're borrowing something from like Coup or right. or another one of those games to to sort of speed it up and tighten it down and and whether or not that's yeah going going to affect it. I hope so. Negatively man, positively. The new design and, and art uh it looks beautiful. It pops. It's a really nice looking game. And we've had so much fun and, with Avalon. But and I'm interested like I was just looking through at all the different new tokens and new stuff that's going on. And like if they've added more game to that game, then it's gonna be I, I'd like to I'd like to play that. Yeah. Like we haven't we haven't played Avalon in a long time because the way that the way it works, we kept playing with the same group and we got so familiar yeah. with our group playing it that it, it became a struggle to play the game because we knew each other's nuances in that game so well yeah. that as a social deduction game it sort of fell apart. Yeah. So it'd be interesting if it if it works differently to try it again. Cool. Yeah, it looks amazing. And yeah, really, that is my issue with the game. It's not that I didn't ever have fun or didn't ever like the game. It's just that after playing it 20 times, everyone knew when I was good, bad, or Merlin. <laughs> and then it became stressful to try to not give give my tells. And I, I suck at that. So it became a really stressful experience. And that's not what you want from, from games most of the but time. It is hilarious for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And I and I do it for everyone else like a performance sometimes. Yeah, Avalon. There's a I like uh, we were, we've been talking about rules and that was sort of our plan for this week was to talk about rules. Yeah. Uh, well, rule books. Yeah. was our or was our original plan. And and there's a very interesting difference between rules and rule book. Right. Where where rules, you know, uh, define the systems of the game and how the game works and 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 what you are to do and how you are to do it and not all the rules are always in the rule book you can have rules everywhere there are games where the rule book will explain how to play but then the rules are everywhere else right so like th- there are a lot of games where you're playing where new cards introduce new rules constantly yeah so so a rule book is is a very it's the foundation and the introduction and the the get up and go of the game, but it's not necessarily all of the rules. Right. So we were talking, eh, we'll talk about rule books. And the Avalon rule book is, is a very neat, uh, small product where you, you need it, especially on the first games that you play because it, because it beyond explaining how to play, mm-hmm. it actually sort of guides you through it because there's, gives you the script. There's so, yeah. There's so much going on that is sort of foreign. If you haven't been playing, um, mafia or werewolf type games yeah. where there's hidden information that needs to be revealed and so the setup is a little intricate so the avalon rulebook actually gives a script that you that you sort of go through until you're used to the game yeah that helps get that information out it's pretty it's good it's funny we, we like we said we played the game so much i think my wife Susie had had that script memorized at some point where well she she was nominated uh, I did such a terrible job. People kept feeling. <laughs> I forgot about that. Of reading through this script, of giving too much information away as I read the script. My pauses were too, right. too informative. Right. My, my noises 
often <laughs> often slip things up. And so it, it I I thrust it upon Susie at one point. I was just like, oh fine, you do it, Susie. Ah. And and everybody was very accepting of Susie's manner. Her, rel- her deadpan delivery. Her relaxing, mindful voice. Yeah. yeah. So so she she took that uh, mantle on and, yeah. and became the yeah, it's funny. Script bearer. Yeah, and it's the only game I can think of really that requires uh, that kind of script to be read every game. I'm sure there's others, but yeah, rule books are fascinating. I mean, we've read a ton. I'm I'm the guy who uh, most often I like to read rule books to sleep because they put me to sleep partly because it's it's not a engaging narrative experience usually, uh, but I also am just interested in learning new games and and also interested in how rule books are crafted and how well they can teach me the game without ever seeing the box or the components. Um, There's a, a fellow named Brandon Rollins mm-hmm. who who writes uh, a blog called Brandon Ro- BrandonTheGameDev.com. Okay. And he, he has uh, some very good rule stuff. And he was, I was reading his thing and he had mentioned the, the difference between rules and rule book. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things he was saying was that rules, and this is something I, I really agree with, and, and rule books that manage this are, I, you know, I don't rate them, but I would rate them higher. Yeah. Where if you can skim a rule book and still get the information you need, even, even sort of for a first play, eh, because some big games are so dense that trying to ideally you were going to read the rule book before you uh, get together to play the game. ideally ideally but very often that doesn't happen so you get a new game or you get a bunch of people who are excited and they go oh let's play that game and you're like okay i'm going to teach you this game and a lot of times you end up having to go to the rule books because of either you haven't played it enough yourself to know it and explain it or there's just too much going on to to really get it so you're gonna end up having to read almost out loud and it gets tedious so to be able to skim and and get across all of the important bits is fantastic and that's i think that's a real there's an art there's a there's reason people hire rules writers sure for rule books and but not everybody can and of course and of course we're talking about the hobby it's a really dull conversation so far well, what else you got? well, rules are rules are tough, right? Because it's <laughs> uh, it's it's like the bane of I think game designers' existence is they want to design the game, they want to get it done, and then to write the rules, and they all know how to play it, and how to communicate it to new players is stuff. It's mundane and it is kind of boring. Um, yeah. But you know, we're talking about hobby games, and you're talking about uh, rules skimmers, and ideally someone's going to read the whole rules. But thinking back to games we played as kids, and even games we've talked about recently, like Yahtzee or Monopoly. Um, those are games like I never read those rule books growing up. You were just kind of taught Monopoly almost word of mouth, which is why so many people play it wrong. But you know the mass market um, games like those There's are a, almost like my, you just know how to play them when you buy them at the store. I got uh, two things. One of the things with Monopoly, Monopoly, and they're both they're both very tied together. Monopoly for you know the first decades of its existence didn't have written rules, right? So there's pockets of people playing Monopoly in different cities who had made their own boards, had passed on the rules, and then and then started playing. So by the time uh, Parker Brothers, right, Milton Bradley, Mark Parker Brothers, always, I'm, I'm terrible. Always forget. Uh, got around to actually printing the rules and packaging the game. Those rules were one. Uh, those were the Atlantic City pocket rules for a game that was 
designed and developed over decades right. through hundreds of people all over the country. So with Monopoly, people know it uh, orally since its inception. Yeah. And, and some of the rules that, you know, aren't in that rules were rules that people were playing. With. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not that necessarily that people are playing Monopoly wrong. People are playing Monopoly wrong based on the rules as written. Right. But it's, but it's this oral history. And that's a, it's a very interesting thing where, and we've, I've brought it up a, a bunch of times where most of the time uh, board games are an oral history where most of the time uh, in our group, you or I learn a game and then teach it. Yeah. And most people don't like my brother who really likes games and, you know, we really got into playing Everdell together. Him and his girlfriend play Fog of Love. They play Ticket to Ride all the time. He dreads the idea. Like I bought him Everdell for Christmas and he hasn't played it with, with my parents yet because he's like, ah, I don't think I can reread that rule book and be the guy that has to teach it. Yeah. Like I really relied on me for, he relied on me for that. And yeah, some people don't want to take that on. It is a bit of work, right? That's why... Rodney Smith has become a superhero in board game world in in content uh, creation stuff. Yeah, where his what's his what's his watch it watch it played watch it played. Yeah, and uh, some publishers now are putting direct links to his videos on their box or in the rules and his presentation where he goes through a game and how to play it and what the rules are in a very concise breakdown are so watchable yeah that like your brother could could sit down totally with your parents and and watch rodney set up that game he's one of the most play that game valuable assets in the board game industry like uh, he's i mean it's it's so simple the idea of, of of starting that channel and doing it well but he's he's locked into such a sweet spot because he doesn't have to be a board game reviewer where if he doesn't like a game, he got to say how he feels about it. He can just learn them all and, and teach them in a neutral way. Happy. Like he's, he's a really charismatic guy. He's got a great, great smile all the time. He used to do some of some of them with his kid. He can love every game, whether he loves them or not. And it's just puts him in this sweet spot where everyone wants Rodney to do a watch it played. Yeah. Like great. there were a lot of run through type videos going on before Rodney came on the scene, but he, he is so charismatic and so amicable and you know he's won everybody over and and now he's done i know it's a bit of a a rodney watch it played tangent but now he's played enough games and been around in the community so long that now he has other videos with like valuable opinions and questions and conversation like oh yeah he's he's got really good input onto uh you know topics and issues in the in the industry yeah he's a well he's a well-liked guy and he's canadian um but just to rewind for a second, um, when we were talking about Monopoly, did, did I completely I, cut you off? And no, no, no. It's, we <laughs> we got to you know we got to play this tennis game. That's what's all about. I brought this up before, but I'm going to bring it up again because it speaks again to the difference of mass market and hobby. And we're mostly talking from a hobby perspective. But like I said, we've been spending time talking about Yahtzee Monopoly, and it's good to know, like you're saying, that Monopoly was word of mouth, like we talked about um, last week with Yahtzee and these traditional dice game that then morph into Farkle and Cosmic Wimpo and you know word of mouth house rules going everywhere type of game you know those companies that pick up those games are then are really kind of hoping and relying that people don't need to to read the rules so much so that uh in 2011 hasbro hired mit media lab to to study monopoly specifically i I have to read the the intro because it's 
It's, it's great. Hasbro sells toys and games. They approached MIT Media Lab looking to understand how mothers specifically learn to play board games. The company believed the difficulty of instructions kept parents from learning new games, which in turn reduced market growth. So they wanted an actual you know, university to study how a parent is reacting while trying to teach their kids how to play Monopoly to see how, what they could do about that and make it either remove it completely. And they did that through a really interesting way of getting everyone to wear these arm bracelets where they measured the, the conductance, how much people were perspiring during the rules reading. Interestingly enough, they give some suggestions at the end of this article. It's out there online for everyone, anyone interested. It's an interesting read. It's called The Frustration of Learning Monopoly. Short. I think you brought this up for our house rules episode. I did. And I, I don't think I spent a lot of time on it and I, and I won't again tonight. But uh, interestingly enough, they said that... Um, I thought I had the conclusion here, but I, I had put it somewhere else. But anyways, they're basically saying there were some suggestions that they would make, one of which being because the kids throughout the study are getting bored and they're nagging their mom and like, come on, hurry up. And mom ends up skipping rules and, and things like that. But they said, it'd be nice to include like a quiz throughout the rule book that as you're reading aloud to your kids, you might say, uh, you know, what do you get when you pass go? A, $200 or whatever, you know? And I'm like, as I was reading this, it's interesting you brought up Rodney. I'm like, well, watch it played for, is an example of, that's the answer. You know, if you don't want people to read rule books, this kind of, hey, just throw on this video and someone guides you through as you're playing. We've mentioned many times the King Domino scoring app that, that I think it's called Dized. D-I-Z-E-D, yep. which I haven't really looked into that because that became a paid platform and, you know, I'm already paying for enough things. But they're onto something too, where they're kind of a an app-based rules platform where I think the idea for most of the, the games they have uploaded is start playing the game and then you know tap the game you're playing on their app and they will kind of walk you through as you're playing. Like you don't have to kind of worry about it. Some rule books are approaching that. So I find it interesting that, you know, Hasbro would like, oh, we're losing market growth. Moms are reading rule books. What do we do? And the hobby game side is kind of answering that with how hobby game designers are writing rule books and how content creators are responding to it too, to more dense rule books. But it's an interesting contrast where hobby game designers are people who are playing games. Yeah. Where the mass market is hiring focus groups and hiring research companies to figure out how do we how do we make this work? Yeah. Because because they're not people who are playing their games. Yeah. You know? So one of the things with some of the modern publishers now, uh, especially I know for sure, Stonemaier Games, yeah. they have uh, teams who are at conventions and stuff to teach new games and to teach the games they have and to play them. So they have ambassadors basically who are learning their games and then teaching other people their games. Yeah, yeah. And the way the way they work through that is to is to get uh, the system for teaching the game and learning the game to be as easy so that you have to learn as little as possible to start playing the game and then as new things come up then they get explained. Right. So it's and it's a great way to teach games and it's something that that you and I should be should be working towards learning mm-hmm. because it, it's a very big block when you when you try and teach a new game to people, especially a heavy game where you try and explain absolutely everything yeah. before you play the game. And because that, that becomes this dense ball of information and people's brains will shut off oh, yeah. as as they're trying to process that. And then they're not getting a way to play the game yeah. through that. Like just sort of shoving the rules at people doesn't help them learn 
how to play the game, right? Yeah. Might might teach them the rules of the game, but not how to play the game. So Stonemeyer Games and and a bunch of other companies, the way they work towards it is they you teach enough to make your first couple moves. Yeah. And and then you start introducing the new stuff that's coming in. And it feels like a different way to play a first game because sure. it, it's very guided and it's very, it's, you know, it doesn't feel like you're actually playing the game the same. Yeah. It's more of a, a demo, but by the you know third or fourth round, people are playing on their own and then they know what's happening and, it, and they'll learn faster. Yeah. There's a trade-off for doing that at your house where it, it doesn't feel like that first game right. is, is, a re, is a real game. But some rules... Some rule books, not so much in the here I'm stumbling where not rules, but rule books. <laughs> right. Some rule books are set up in, in a way that sort of works the same way where they'll get you up and running. You, you, you quickly get through the setup. You quickly get through uh, the first couple moves and then it starts introducing, you know, some of the more dense yeah. subject matter. No, totally. And I'm holding a rule book in my, in my hands right now, which kind of ties a few of the things we're just saying together. Interestingly, Fog of Love, a game we, we just talked about, which is that relationship, basically a rom-com in a board game where, you know, you and I played it where I'm playing one person, you're playing another person. And we basically go through these story cards about different points in our relationship. And we have to kind of, again, play this little bit of a poker game. We're not really bluffing each other, but we're, we're trying to keep each other, the relationship happy while at the same time meet our own personal goals. It's a really interesting game. I genuinely love it, even though I haven't played it since I wrote my gushing article about it for, for our site a long time ago. But th- this is a game that got a lot of buzz when it came out, so much so that Walmart picked it up as an exclusive. So it, it um, you know tapped into that mass market side a little bit. And interestingly, as soon as you open the rule book, it just says, please note, play the tutorial first or watch a video. And they specifically uh, guide you to watch it played to Rodney. Like you mentioned, some rule books are doing that. And they tell you, don't, don't read the rule book, which isn't that big anyways. And what the game has done, because it's a card-driven story game, is they've given you a shorter tutorial scenario where you just take this pack of cards out of plastic, like you were going to play the very first game, and it teaches you the rules as you go through like your first date. Um, You do that once. You know, it's a little bit of a slog, but no more than reading a rule book. At least this way, we're playing the game. We're both engaged. I take a turn reading a card. You read the next one. We're learning the rules as we go. And then I may be like halfway. By the time the tutorial rules are all out, uh, we can play like the second half of the game the way it's meant to be played and are ready to play the next game. And the game, the box, that what comes in the box is, is kind of like a bunch of little expansions. Um, where you can learn new rules for each little scenario. And it just gradually builds your knowledge. It, it, there's a picture of a, a couple holding hands on the rule book and the, the game literally holds your hand through the rules. And it's, it's great. They did a good job. Fog of love. I have, uh, I started working on, I was originally going to do a small, we, we do the little top fives yeah, yeah. from time to time. Yeah. And and we're lazy. We don't get around to them. So I have a whole bunch of them started. And I was working on one before of my top five rule book pet peeves. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I have some. I have a couple. Um, but one of the last episodes we did, I was talking about Oracle of Delphi. Right. And I had said specifically during that, oh, there's, I should mention this. And I said, I should wait till we talk about r- rules and rule books and and so now we are. So I should I should talk about what what my issue was with the Oracle of Delphi rulebook because it's a it's one of my pet peeves right. in in rules in rule books. I keep wanting to say rules, yeah. but 
you know, I set up that very rigid definition. <laughs> so in the rule book, um, there's a, there's always an issue if, if ordering and sequencing right. isn't, isn't sort of followed where if there's important information that's, that's sort of hinted towards, but not mentioned, it needs to be mentioned before it's hinted. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Where if you're going to say, draw a card, you have to have said where you're drawing that card from before you start saying to do it. Right. Right. I mean, that's a broad example. I made that up. Yeah. Uh, so, so an Oracle of Delphi, which has so many parts, it has these interchangeable map tiles that go together to build this world. And then you have uh, colored bits of all types that get scattered all over this thing. And you're setting all this stuff up. And there's um, so many for each player that's playing the game. And you go through all of this setup step by step as you're learning the game. In the rule book, it, it walks you through it all. Right. And then you've got it all set up. And then it comes to a spot that says, if you're only playing with two players, you only need oh, this. Oh, yes. So you go through and you set up all this stuff. And it, or, or, or if it's your first time, only play with, with this many things. Right. So at the bottom, after you've set up everything... It then tells you that well, you don't you don't need all of that. Uh, you know, if you're if you're not playing with everybody, uh, you put some back in the box. Yeah. So that that should have been yeah at the beginning, where it said if you're only playing with so many players, check down here right before you before you set up. So you go through and you set it up, and it and it's happened to me twice, right? Yeah. Because I played it the first time I ever had it. And I, and I caught myself with doing that. Ah, oh, man. So now we get rid of this. And then I didn't play it again for like six months, right. eight months. And so I started, I had to relearn and I had to go through the whole setup again. And I, and I didn't remember that. And I got to the part and I was just like, oh man, there it is again. And so, and that, that's a, that's a fun example, but that's a, it's a, I don't want to say common because I don't have a lot of other examples, but it is, it is fairly common. Yeah. It's a, as a as a hiccup in rule books it's a tough one too like uh I, yeah i find that's a tough one because uh, you know i'm often either playing games two players or solo and i want to read the rules as written for the way the rule book has written it which is often for like a four player count or mm. you know and i kind of want to experience the game without those two or three player variants um and then they are, they're either going to be tacked on at the end of the book, or they can be oh. they can be placed but, throughout. Um, but yeah. yeah, but I'm not I'm not even referring to a, a variant, right? It's not like no, no, no. Meaning a variant was player variant. Variant was the wrong word to use. Um, it's just like if you're playing with ten people, you get this many cards. If you're playing with three people, you get this many cards. Yeah, yeah. Right. The the difference with Oracle of Delphi is just that you have to set up so much stuff. Yeah. And then it says at the bottom how much you do for like a lot of other games will have that, you know, as you're setting up, it'll say, put these cards out. If you're playing with this many people, yeah. put out this many cards. If you're putting out this, put out this many for that many players. Yeah. Oracle of Delphi doesn't really say that until you've set everything up. Right. And then, and then it says, go back and do that. Yeah. That's annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, I have the dungeon pets rule book out in front of me for another reason that I'll oh get, that I'll get to later. Um, I have a note on the dungeon pets. Yeah. I'll come back to it. Cause it's something else I want to talk about opposite of pet peeve, something I really like, but um, yeah, no, me it too. has a, uh, is it humor? 
humor is a big part of it yeah but it has a really good example of, of a really good example of what you're talking about um where the game is different if you play with two or three players it's a worker placement game you know where these little uh imps um running around getting food and meat to feed these dungeon monsters in in cages for for dungeon lords it's kind of like, kind of like taking care of a tamagotchi in the 90s except you know you're playing a worker placement board game um so what's the big difference as you're setting up for two or three players is that to block some worker placement spaces there's a neutral imp that you keep having to move around but you know like you're saying is, is it humor um Schwatil's rule books at least the ones for cge for the czech games are, are funny rule books um and he he keeps talking about the neutral imp that you have to place around like it's a character in, in the game so you know it uh for example you can buy cages you can go to one of the spaces to get cages for your pets and uh you know basically it's a, a if one of the two cage buying spaces is blocked by a neutral imp you only deal one new one when you're setting up for the next round apparently the neutral imp took one cage before you could get there like those are sprinkled throughout apparently the imp stole the meat before you could get there so it's just a little bit of humor but like you said those those rules are separate color-coded paragraphs uh that are just alongside the main rules but uh it's in the rules too like they have humor in the actual rules uh i'm trying to find a friend of mine on instagram just highlighted. Oh, it's my favorite one. I know who you're talking about because I follow her too. And she highlighted my favorite oh, my, instance in it, the rule book. Yeah, I have it written down because I wanted to read it. It's um, it's about the, the, the meat, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's... Uh, no, no. It's when you discard the leftover pets. Right, 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 right. You, so you, the rule book says discard all pets in the upper half. Yeah. They are removed from the game. But don't worry, they go to farms in the country where they live happily ever after. <laughs> right. For each pet discarded, add one meat token to the meat stand in the food market. Um, it's it's just a rule. Yeah, and that's written in the rule book. It's uh, yeah, 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 that's the rule. It's just a rule. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ka- Catherine featured that on the seven days, seven rules, something or other that she was doing, and yeah, I was so it's. When, Great. when she posted that, I'm like, oh, that's my favorite line in the whole rule book. Um, it's kind of dark, but it's uh, really, really cool. And for uh, as funny as the the Dungeon Pets rule book is, the Galaxy Trucker rule book is worth reading just for fun uh, because it's so funny. Um, yeah. And again, what I really like about Vladis Schwatil's games, and we've mentioned this before, he does a really good job of designing games where the theme and the mechanics integrate kind of seamlessly, where it just makes sense everything that you're doing, you know, in Dungeon Pets, um, in in Galaxy Trucker, and then so this this extends to the rule book where Galaxy Trucker is written because you know in Galaxy Trucker you're just kind of almost like mercs, you're just like nobody's hired uh, by a corporate a giant corporation, uh, corporation incorporated to. Um, to, to take these makeshift garbage trucks basically across the galaxy. They might blow up. They're, they're useless. Uh, you're risking your lives to make money for this corporation. So the rule book reads kind of like they're, they're kind of recruiting you. And, there's, and these are the same through all of CGE books, um, Dungeon, Dungeon Pets, Tash Kalar is another one of his games that has this, where you're reading the rules and then every couple paragraphs, there's a flavor text where the game is speaking to you in a narrative way, which is just really fun so like my um 
one of my favorites uh, here is they're talking about the batteries. I know it's been a while since we played Galaxy Trekker, but uh, you know, you put these little, this is a tile placing game where you're building your ship. Um, and one of the things you can put out is, is batteries. And they just look like green, like cell batteries, double A batteries that you'd put anywhere in your house into things. Um, in the game, they power your shields and, and things like that. And so it explains how to place your batteries and what they're for. And then in the narrative flavor, it says with matter annihilation technology, it was possible to store this much energy in a battery, no larger than a good cigar. Today, of course, matter annihilation is illegal thanks to the lobbying efforts of matter rights activists. And narrowly, narrowly defeated in the last legislative session was a bill backed by the Gentlemen's Club's lobby to ban the use of good cigars and silly comparisons. It's, like, it's just full of this bonkers... Uh, it reads like, a Douglas, like Douglas Adams wrote this rule book a little bit. Um, it's really fun. Um, so I, as an opposite, I, I want to get back to the pet peeves cause I have some too, but, uh, we can bounce back and forth from pet peeves and things I really like. And, uh, those, the, his rule books are, are my favorites for the humor and the narrative kind of immersion that he puts into it. Sure. For, uh, I'll pick a favorite for, for that sort of thing too, is the, the, uh, Wasteland Express mm. delivery service. That rule book is, is one of my favorites where it's such a big game. And that it has the same uh, flair to it, mm-hmm. where it's ex- extremely thematic rule book the whole way through, but it's laid out so well. And it's it's got to be the most beat up rule book I have because every game we end up referencing it 10 or 20 times. Right. And it's not because the rules are convoluted. It's just because we might not remember a thing or we want to know a thing. And the game changes so much depending on what you're doing that you just, we just end up reading through stuff right. all the time. Yeah, And, and it's always easy to find, even though it's a huge book. And like they've, they also have uh, like the supplements, the stuff that doesn't matter mm. isn't, isn't in the rule book. Right. Right. So they have a, a page of like how to pack your game back up. Right. And that's not in the rule book. That's not in your way. The rule book is uh, big and colorful and easy to navigate. And it's also, it's full of stories because it has uh, a narrative. It's not like a legacy thing, but they have a narrative campaign that you can follow through. So there's, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a book on its own right for, for that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's one a good of my, one. Do, do you have a pet peeve or you want me to just I, go to another one? Uh, I can give a pet peeve real, sure. real quick. Um, Probably, it's it's really interesting, and I uh, I'm not, I'm not going to pick on Jamie Stegmaier because I love the games of his that I've played. I love Scythe, I love Tapestry. Um, but interestingly enough, I was listening to an interview with him on the Board Game Design Lab uh, today from a few years back, um, and he was given hint, uh, tips about rule books. And one of the things he said, and I guess he was, you know, he had released Scythe at this point and, and Viticulture and was working on, um, oh, what's the legacy, uh, Charterstone. Um, and he hit, one of his tips was to not to try to confine rules to a small space. You know, you, you shouldn't short change the rules there. You know, you need to make sure you've covered everything. But then Tapestry came along last year. And again, I really like it. It's one of my favorite games of the year. I've played it more than any other game, I think probably this year or last year. Um, and it was a bit of a proud thing, I think, for for Jamie, and and, and rightfully so, because it's a fairly complicated game, um, but it's just four pages of rules. And 
it's it's all there. It's all covered. It has a separate Otama solo rules, but it it isn't all covered. Um, yeah, yeah. There's 16 or, or 12, 16 civilizations that come with that game, uh, and they all have their own asymmetric kind of power. Uh, and it doesn't cover like some frequently like a, an FAQ would have been suited suitable for what to do in certain certain situations, those civilizations. You can get space tiles in those games. Uh, just if you go up one track, it's like a civiliz- light civilization game. Uh, you go up one track, you get space tiles, which give you these big rewards because they're to the end of this track that you maxed out. And there's iconography on there that, yes, it's in the rule book in other places. Like those same symbols show up on the tech cards and show up on tapestry cards and they're in the rules and you can find what they mean but there's no little appendix of like, here's the space cards and here's what each one of them means. And I, and I get it that it kind of goes back to what we're saying about the, you know, the frustration of learning monopoly. And like, it's really a big selling point. If someone can, can put out a game, especially one that's medium weight, that's just four pages long. You can get it going in 10 minutes. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm not really picking, uh, but it is a bit of a pet peeve. If it felt like you did try to cram it in there and you just left it a couple things that I was looking for at some point. <laughs> It, it's, it seems like that's been a goal for a long time yeah. where people try and make make it as concise as possible. And for me, the one that stands out is not nearly as complicated a game and doesn't need to be, yeah. but um, Century Eastern Wonders uh, we have. Mm-hmm. And, and they did a thing where they fit their rules onto a single double-sided page. Right. But, but there is this omission problem where things have come up that aren't specifically noted, you know, like they had, everything's there, but there's things that are slightly missing. Yeah. And I did, and we haven't played for a while, so I don't have a good example, but when we were learning that game, we had to go to the forums all the time because of, you know, we would look at the thing and it would say, yes, this, but it wouldn't say yes, this, but not that. Or, right. you know, the, there's a, there's a thing where you have to, um, sort of cover the most of the least, you know, you have to yeah. assume um, it's like, what is it? There's a rule I read for, for writing rules where um, when you're trying to be specific, you have to be as specific as possible mm-hmm. for, a, for like an action and stuff where you say, you know, take one and only one. Right. And then you have to carry that through for all of your rules and, and not saying that, take one card and leaves it open to interpretation or misunderstanding where people don't always read the same words, Mm -hmm. get the same meaning. So if you're not precise enough, there, there leads to questions and well, maybe they don't mean that. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe, maybe they mean something else. And like there have been arguments that I've been in at, at, at tables where people are just reading the same rule. Yeah. And he, and hearing two different things. Yeah, you really ha- and, have to leave no room for doubt. Yeah, so Eastern Wonders did a great job of fitting it all on one page, and everything is there, and you can play the game. But when we were learning the game, we had to go and and double check things because there wasn't the that that little bit of extra. Well, not that, or yeah, yes, that. You know. No, absolutely. Yeah. There was too much elbow room in their conciseness. They did the same with the first with Spice Road, which I have the Go- Golem edition. It's just a double-sided thing, which I think was that's their you plan. You taught me that game, so I didn't read the rules. Yeah, and it works for that game because there's less going on. Eastern Wonders is a step up in weight, and they 
they tried to fit the rules on the same space. Um, mm. So it makes sense that there's a few omissions there, I think. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is is silly. It's a, it's a very <laughs> silly one. We we have the game Jamaica. Yeah. And oh. when you open the game Jamaica <laughs> and you take out the rule book, it's a giant fold-out poster. Yeah. Which is which is a lot of fun if you're if you're not playing the game. You you spread it out on your game table and you feel like a pirate and you they they have it laid out in a very yeah. ordered way to learn the game. But the problem with this giant poster is that the first time we learned the game, we were at a board game cafe oh, and you you have the table set up with the game and you're trying to juggle this giant poster and it's it's not yours. So you don't want to fold it the wrong way, yeah. do stuff. And it is very hard to reference. If you're playing, you have to unfold this map. Yeah. Try and find the section that it was it's that's it's ridiculous. It's a silly thing. Yeah. But it was too much. And then to counter that, there's a Wizards Wanted, which I've talked about here before again. Yeah. Also has a big fold out poster of rules. And you can just fold it up. And it turns into this little little pamphlet. Right. So it's a giant poster and it has the same effect. So if you want to lay it out and, on your table and look at it like you're planning a heist, it works. Right. But whenever you're actually using it, you can fold it up and it and it accordions into this yeah. uh, brochure that is easy to follow. So, I mean, and Jamaica is almost set up the same way, but you can't... Can't fold it up in the same way. It yeah. the words go over the creases. It's just, it's a silly pet peeve. Awesome. Awesomely enough, though, I feel like with Jamaica, with us at the Board Game Cafe, for the people working the cafe and looking over oh, yeah. at our table, I mean, we look like four seafarers in a raft who are lost at sea. Uh, <laughs> Where's the treasure? How do we do here? Yeah, what do, how do we get here? What do I do? I flip a card. Yeah. It, how do I make my boat go left? It's pretty great for that, I think. Yeah. Probably, um, I think my biggest pet peeve, uh, I want to say, and I didn't think this was the case until I've played enough board games to really drill it home. Uh, because again, as we've talked about many times, Thunderstone on here. Um, when we, you and I first played it, I loved opening it up and reading the flavor text of what world we were in and what was happening and why we were going off on an adventure together. The more games I've played, I've realized the less information I want in the rule book about where we are and what's going on. And I want, I want the story not to be told to me like a fantasy novel that's not written by a fantasy novelist uh, and more communicated to me through the game mechanics and the components and the art and the cards and whatever else might be there. That's, that's funny because that, that is almost opposite to what you said you loved about galaxy truckers. Yeah. That's a really good counter. It's, and it's, and the game that maybe fixes that is, is Lords of Waterdeep where they, you open the Lords of Waterdeep, a rule booklet, it jumps right in and explains everything you need to know about playing the game. And once it gets past that, then it gets into the lore and the backstory and, and the theme and all of that stuff. And then for the rest of the book, while you're reading about what every card does, because it talks about what every card does, it, it's using the theme in the writing. Mm-hmm. And then the last page, which is a beautiful thing for all rule books, the last page has how to do everything very simply. Right. It has a complete breakdown of everything that you read in the front of the rule book to get started and how to play the game in point form. So with less information and just once you learn the game, you can just go to this one page and breeze through it. And a lot of a lot of rule books do that now. Right. And that's that's brilliant. Yeah. I hear you. And I and you're right. Lords of Waterdeep is a great example. 
I think the difference between Galaxy Trucker and something like Thunderstone is that Galaxy Trucker, you know what the game is, you know, you know what you're doing. It's silly. It's like a, mostly a party game. And what the rule book feels like to me is someone making you laugh while you're trying to figure out how to play the game. Yeah. And it, it does a little bit for immersion, but it's more like getting you through it in a pleasant way. Whereas yeah. Thunderstone, especially Thunderstone Quest right now, and this is this is big for me, because you and I have played through a few of those quests where you have to read like half a page, a big wide rulebook page. And there's so many cards and there's so much unique art and unique characters. They've named all the characters and they've kind of given them personalities in the in the text. So like we are nameless champions in, in, in Thunderstone Quest, for example, but we're with, you know, whoever, Amos and Nimblefingers and, and so someone else. Whereas I'm like, don't tell me any of that. These are just these are just archetype rogues and 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 fighters. And I'll they'll be whoever they are in that particular game based on how they come up with my card draw and whether they deal the final blow. And we, we have more fun with those soft incentives of making up who these people are versus the board game rule book telling us who they are. It's funny, I read I read a complaint on Coimbra where in Coimbra there are the cards that you're you're bidding for and using as actions are different townsfolk sort of thing. Mm. So they're like the mayors and what sort in town, but they're not named and there's no story about them. They're just they're just suits basically. Right. Like and and one of the complaints that I had read about that game was that that didn't exist. That that they hadn't all been named. That there wasn't a story for really for who these people were. So it, I mean, you're subjective. Never gonna... Yeah, and I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna die on the, this horse or anything because I think some people would really love the work put into the narrative side of Thunderstone Quest. I've realized. I like discovering it for I, myself. I think we we bit off way more than we could chew on this. We should have we should have focused <laughs> ourselves on what we actually want to talk about. And this is, this is like three other episodes. So this is this is sort of an introduction to yeah rulebook stuff. I felt the same one, way about the video game chat. I think there's more there too. But yeah, there's one really important. I don't even want to call it a pet peeve. Uh-huh. There's one really important issue with rulebooks that is changing that that we should quickly address, and and that's. Um, inclusiveness. It's a pronoun right. use in, in rule books, right? So for decades, we all know that the majority of rule books sort of were at the whim of, of the writers and it was a lot of he's or, or whatnot. Yeah. And there were some great shining examples where, where you find rule books like Pathfinder, mm. which, is, which is another conversation where, where RPGs basically just are rule books. Right. Um, where Pathfinder refreshingly uses her for for all of the core rulebook yeah which is which is nice but there's a good change happening now where more and more uh, writers for for rules are are becoming more aware more publishers are uh, doing it right yeah so now instead of he it's becoming you know the player or they yeah and it's be, it's becoming more inclusive and that's that's an important change it's an important shift and it's something that you know if you're going to talk about rule books i think i think first yeah. conversation that that should go you're, there you're absolutely right and i mean we didn't get into just how uh, you know how rule books are laid out and and the structure and the pronouns and 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 in the proper tenses you should be using or whatever because i think that is the boring side of exploring rule books but i think what i think, what, I think the we point, started going down that road and and i tried to shift away from that but i i love that conversation me too but um, i agree with you that it's a bit it's a bit dry but i agree that bringing up the inclusiveness is is a is a big part uh an important part of that boring side of 
how to actually grammatically write a rule book and, and structure it. Yeah. Which is, again, a whole other topic. We, we have to do a part two on rule books. Beyond, beyond that being the right way to write it, that is a huge, like, I, I, I just didn't want to call it a pet peeve because it's more important to people. Yeah. But that is, that is a huge, where I'm, I'm joking about stumbling over this foldy map. Right. There are a lot of people who, are, who have been reading rule books their whole life and don't, don't feel like it's talking to them. Yeah, sure. You know, so for for us, we may not feel that same thing, but we know mm-hmm. that it's there, and and so it it deserves to be mentioned. That's all. yeah, that's all yeah. I mean by that. Absolutely, no, you're right. That's a good point. Glad you brought it up. Yeah, I had other rule books here to talk about and other points to make, but yeah, like we usually can chew through an hour pretty quickly, so we'll have to uh, meet again for part part two on on rules at some point because there's. There's more to it. Okay. See you, bitch. See ya. (laughs) So long.